The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Abraham Lincoln was, among all U.S. presidents, the master of the English language. His writings are known throughout the world. But what exactly did Abraham Lincoln write? His papers were published in the 1950s, but since then many new documents have been discovered. It's time for a new edition of the papers of Abraham Lincoln, and our guest today is Daniel Stoll, director and editor of the Papers of Abraham Lincoln Project. We'll be back in a moment to learn more about the writings of our 16th president on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to talk. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this clear and sunny uh, Friday afternoon in October 2009 from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina from the uh, medieval fortress that is the Brewster Building, but not speaking on behalf of the university, uh, speaking only for myself, as I know our guest will do the same, not representing his institution. Uh, We always do it that way here on Civil War Talk Radio. It has been uh, uh, an interesting week here. I had the opportunity to speak to the Dorsey Pender chapter of the Uh, Civil War Roundtable last night in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and talk a little bit about Abraham Lincoln with uh, the folks there and learn about some things going on at local educational institutions around there, Uh, uh, and a chance to proselytize for Civil War talk radio, which some of them uh, listen to. And and, uh, it's interesting to find out that my neighbors know what I'm up to on Friday afternoons. The uh, overriding question that none of them had, of course, was how did the Greenville Stars do this week? The U14 girls team did not play, so we're sitting comfortably in second place. We'll be back next week with a report on how how youth soccer is progressing here in Greenville. Uh, 
for those of you who sent donations to the book fund here at Civil War Talk Radio, you can send those to civilwartr at um, And those are always welcome. Uh, they do help us, uh, help me buy uh, books to read, uh, to uh, get ideas for new authors to invite. Those of you who have sent ideas, uh, also very welcome. Please send your ideas. If you have ideas or comments or anything like that, uh, please send them to uh, my address here at ecu.edu. The, the PayPal address uh, is, is, is just for cash and consulted uh, only when, when something comes in with this sort of kerching sound on the computer. Um, but if you want to uh, comment on Civil War Talk Radio, offer a suggestion, or do anything else, you can go to uh, uh, cwtr.org uh, online, and you can find there uh, a website which has a link, to, I believe, to my office address, uh, which is my last name and first initial here at ecu.edu. So please keep the uh, suggestions coming in. They are always welcome. Uh, today we are talking about a subject uh, a Lincoln subject. I, I try to keep the Lincoln subjects reasonably well spread out, even in this bicentennial year. Uh, a subject I find uh, endlessly interesting, and I know many of you do, but we, uh, it's Civil War talk radio, not Abraham Lincoln talk radio, and I, I'm keenly aware of that to those who are concerned that it will become all Lincoln. Uh, uh, it will not. It will not become all one thing or all the other, as Lincoln would have said. It will continue to uh, be mostly Civil War-specific topics, but the occasional Lincoln show, uh, well, it, it's my show and I get to do it if I want. So I'm doing that today with our guest, uh, Daniel Stoll, who is the director and editor of the papers of Abraham Lincoln. Daniel, are you there? I am. Happy welcome. to be here. Uh, wel welcome to the show. Uh, I, I hear you're uh, perforce uh, on a speakerphone this afternoon. Where are you calling in from? I'm at uh, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois. They, um, as we may talk about uh, shortly, uh, host all of our master digital images and uh, was able to borrow a phone for them. I happen to be at the University of Illinois, but unfortunately it was a speakerphone. So, uh, so we'll have a little echo, but we'll, we'll overcome that. That shouldn't be a problem. Well, that... Um let me ask, before we get into the heart of the project, and there's all kinds of interesting things that just the very presence at the supercomputing center, all kinds of questions that that brings up, but tell me a little bit about your own background. You've studied history professionally and written about it. Have you always been interested in Lincoln primarily? Uh, no, I, I really started out more as a Southern historian, a religious historian. Uh, I like to say that I grew up with a divided childhood. My uh, mother is from Georgia. My father was from New York State. Um, I, I grew up in Georgia, um, attended the University of Georgia and then the University of Florida. And uh, my primary interests were always in the period of Lincoln, the Civil War era, the mid-19th century but not specifically Lincoln, uh, although he figured a bit in my dissertation, which was about the uh, reconstruction of religious life in the South after the Civil War. Uh, he was not a, a key focus of that. And, and that, uh, I should point out, that's been published uh, since that, that uh, dissertation, is that right? That's correct. Oxford University Press published it as uh, Rebuilding Zion, the Religious Reconstruction of the South. 
so listeners can can check that out. Um, well, I my interest had always been in in military aspects of the Civil War, and it was my encounter with David Donald at Harvard that that made me into a uh, a member of the Lincoln community. Uh, what got you uh, converted from uh, religion to to Abraham? Well, I think. Uh if I had to point to one person, it would probably be uh, Kermit Hall, who taught a, a legal history seminar uh, at the University of Florida and uh, did a wonderful job and, and got me uh, far more interested in legal history than I had been before. Um, and actually, when I joined the project, it was the Lincoln Legal Papers. And so I kind of entered the Lincoln field through Lincoln's law practice and his legal career and have continued on from there. Well, let's talk about the Lincoln Legal Papers. That um, an absolutely landmark documentary editing project. Uh, give us the, the thumbnail outline. What was the, the Lincoln Legal Papers? How did it start, and how did you get involved? All right. Well, the, the Lincoln Legal Papers began in 1985 as an effort to, in effect, finish the collected works of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Roy Basler and his fellow editors had left the Legal Papers for the most part out of the collected works. Uh, looking forward to a later project to deal with those. And it was not until 30-plus years later that the state of Illinois and the Abraham Lincoln Association um, began to put together uh, within the Illinois State Historical Library uh, a project that uh, was the Lincoln Legal Papers. And that project uh, continued for a decade and a half, uh, locating ultimately over 96,000 documents from Lincoln's law practice. And published, and I joined the project in 1996, um, and we published in 2000 um, the uh, comprehensive image edition of all of those documents arranged by case uh, on DVD-ROM. Uh, and then after that, we published, uh, in 2008, we published the four-volume, very selective edition of Lincoln's Legal Papers, only about 750 documents out of those 96,000 but they were fully transcribed, fully annotated, contextualized both historically and legally. And um, since we finished the publication of the four-volume selective edition, we've come out with a second edition of the comprehensive image-based version of Lincoln's law practice, and that is now freely available online. So uh, that pretty well completes the Lincoln Legal Papers, or as we now refer to it, Series 1 of the Papers of Abraham Lincoln. Now, when when the, the Lincoln Legals started, as people used to shorthand call them, uh, there was no expectation that, that they would find 96,000 documents, was there? No, not at all. In fact, uh, uh, my predecessors and, and, and colleagues were told that all of the Lincoln documents, handwritten documents by Lincoln, had been removed from courthouses decades ago. Um, after we found more than 200 uh, documents in Lincoln's hand in those courthouses, that, that uh, suggestion kind of died down. But uh, no one uh, expected the kind of magnitude uh, of uh, material that we would find. And in fact, in the second edition that we have now published online, there are probably two or 3,000 more documents that we located since we initially published in 2000. Um, especially because some new Lincoln documents have surfaced that point to new cases that we did not know he was involved in. And so we didn't have to go back to the courthouses and get those additional documents 
case files and, and docket books and so forth from those new cases that um, we now know Lincoln was involved in. When you talk about a Lincoln legal document, is this limited to documents that Lincoln himself wrote out? No, no. They are actually all documentation from um, cases that he or his partners handled during the period of their partnership. And so many, many, many of the 96,000 documents are written by clerks, by judges, by fellow attorney, opposing attorneys, um, uh, co-counsels, uh, his partners. Um, I would say that perhaps two to three thousand, two to three thousand documents of those ninety-six thousand are actually written, for the most part, in Abraham Lincoln's hand. Which is still an astonishing number, uh, given is. given what what people expected to find. Absolutely. Now, in the next question is, how did you find all these documents? We did it the old-fashioned way. We went and looked. Uh, we conducted what we call blind searches of um, courthouses that were from counties that had been at any point on his, on his eighth judicial circuit or in his immediate um, area of practice in central Illinois. And uh, to conduct a blind search, we basically looked at every case from that period uh, in which he practiced, page by page, sheet by sheet, looking for any indication that Lincoln was involved, his handwriting, his name, his partner's names, that kind of thing. In other counties in Illinois, we did more focused searches because he certainly handled a large number of cases from the Illinois Supreme Court, uh, or in the Illinois Supreme Court, that came up on appeal from other counties all over the state. In fact, one of the things that we, we learned or reinforced is that he was something of a lawyer's lawyer in the sense that uh, other attorneys around the state began to rely upon Lincoln and his partners to handle their cases in the Illinois Supreme Court. And so in those counties, we would, we would do focus searches that were looking for the documentation for just you know, a certain number of cases. Then you must also have turned up, uh, I mean, in, in any search like that, you find things you're looking for, but then, then you come across things in unexpected places. Did things find you as, as you were doing this? They did. Uh, we, we certainly didn't only check courthouses. We looked at repositories around the nation, um, private collections. Uh, even after we had uh, published the electronic version and were working on the selective print edition, we had a, a lady call us from um, southern Illinois who had uh, a document written by David Davis, um, frequent judge uh, in Lincoln's practice from 1849 uh, forward, and it turned out by pure serendipity that that particular document was from one of the cases that we had selected for inclusion in the uh, very selective book edition, and so we were able to get copies of that document and actually include it in the, in the four-volume uh, print edition. Uh, so we did find things we didn't expect. Uh, the other thing that I always like to point out about the law practice, uh, and I think this is true of any good documentary edition, whether the edition is focusing on a famous person or a famous movement, is that you illuminate so much more than just that person. Um, the Lincoln Legal Papers tell us a lot about Abraham Lincoln and his career as a lawyer, but they also tell us a lot about uh, antebellum law, about society in uh, Illinois or, or even the Midwest uh, in the time, about business transactions and land transactions and criminal activity and all, all sorts of other kinds of, of topics that are not 
directly, um, you know, they're not Lincoln biography. Well, I think that's one of the remarkable things about the the project as it got published. Uh, as you say, it, it's an incredible tool for the social history of Illinois and, and the Midwest uh, in the antebellum era. It, it really does tell us all these things uh, about how law is practiced and about how people live that, that uh, extend its interest far beyond those who are just interested in Abraham Lincoln. Uh, if you'd wanted to do a project on antebellum law in Illinois, I, I don't suppose you could ever have gotten funded for something like that. No, uh, Abraham Lincoln provides the poster child, if you will. And I think similarly, uh, given that this is Civil War Talk Radio, I think similarly this is going to happen with Abraham Lincoln's presidency. It's going to, the papers that we are locating are going to illuminate all sorts of aspects of the Civil War and politics and military operations and so forth. Um, and certainly make those materials more readily accessible than they have been before. Um, but we have to do it, obviously, in the name of Lincoln, and we are learning much more about Abraham Lincoln as well. Let me say with the, the legal papers, just for another moment, because I, I was working at uh, Fort Wayne's Lincoln Museum while that project was underway and, and following its progress, and I remember the discussions uh, at the time of how you would uh, published this when it became clear that there were not just two or three hundred or two or three thousand documents, but tens of thousands, almost a hundred thousand documents. Uh, the idea of publishing them, you know, transcribing them in a, into a book would mean you'd have, uh, you know, maybe a, uh, hundreds of volumes, uh, literally, and that was obviously not practical, and it would take many years to transcribe. Uh, at one point, I remember, I, I think uh, there was talk of doing it on CD-ROMs, and it was pointed out it would take. 23 of those. That's right. Uh, Initially, the project uh, began as a microfilm project uh, in, the, in the very early stages, in the late 1980s. Uh, and then it was converted into a, a, a digital project with the planned medium being, as you say, 23, well, we didn't know at the time, but uh, some number. Uh, it would have ended up being 23 uh, CD-ROMs. And near the time that we were ready to publish, um, DVD-ROM technology became a much more viable option, and so we made the decision to sort of aim a little bit ahead of the curve uh, and, and publish on three DVD-ROMs, which, of course, um, made it so much easier to look at the material without having to switch 23 CDs in and out of your computer uh, to look at different images in different cases. Um, three DVD-ROMs sometimes became a bit troublesome, but uh, far uh, more convenient than than 23 CDs. And now, of course, we're making it available uh, online uh, so that you don't have to use the uh, CDs or the DVDs. So now, this online version is this equivalent to the original DVD publication? It is. It has all of the documents, um, all of the cases, all of the images that the DVD-ROM publication has, all of the, the background and reference material we have, I believe, two or three hundred uh, biographies of frequent uh, fellow attorneys and judges and uh, frequent clients. Um, we have maps of his, uh, of his uh, the judicial circuits in Illinois. We have a glossary and all of that material. But in addition, the second edition online includes I believe 1,400 new documents that uh, were not in the first edition that we have found, both through research on the selected print edition and also through the discovery of new Lincoln documents that have opened up new cases. Uh, 
and we have replaced probably two or three thousand um, black and white images with new color images that are much more legible and much more give you a much better feel for the original document. We don't plan to do that for all 96,000, but as we've had opportunity, we have replaced some of those. Um, so it, it, it is everything the DVD edition is um, plus. Wow, well that, that is, is very intriguing. Uh, I'm going to ask you for the address for that and complain about it all just in just a minute, but first we're going to take a short break. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, this is Civil War Talk Radio, and we will be right back. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Papers of Abraham Lincoln, once on paper, soon to be online. We'll find out where you can see them when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Daniel W. Stowell. He is the director of the Papers of Abraham Lincoln Project, uh, former director of the Lincoln Legal Papers Project, now Series 1 of the Papers of Abraham Lincoln. And we've been talking in our first session about the, that first project, the Lincoln Legal Papers, begun in the mid-1980s, uh, carried on through that decade in the 90s uh, into the, the current decade, and finally the published originally in DVD format and then uh, uh, a letterpress edition of some of the most notable documents. Uh, it's an incredibly useful publication. Anyone who has seen it, uh, the, the three DVD set of the, the legal papers, the law practice of Abraham Lincoln, knows that it is, is not just a set of images of documents that, uh, that you sometimes have to squint to read a little bit. The handwriting is not always of the best uh, in the mid-19th century. But it also includes uh, an astonishing amount of reference material that... Uh, 
in in an interactive fashion tells you the entire story of uh, of legal culture, legal practice in mid nineteenth century Illinois. Uh, now, Daniel, you said this document, this or this original publication, is now available online. Uh, where can listeners go to to see that? The uh, web address is www.lawpracticeofabrahamlincoln altogether, all lowercase. Uh, lawpracticeofabrahamlincoln.org. So that's the lawpracticeofabrahamlincoln.org. Now, I said I was going to complain about it, and I will do that now. When when the Law Practice of Abraham Lincoln was first published by the University of Illinois, I received a, a copy to review for the, the journal Documentary Editing, uh, which I was uh, pleased to do and to, to give it a very glowing review as, as an incredible landmark in, in documentary editing and use of technology to 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 bring to the public something that would never be accessible uh, in any other format. And I remember being particularly delighted that I now had a $2,000 publication in my library, uh, which was the initial cost. Um, over the years, I've, I've noticed it has gone down, uh, but now it's free online. Uh, you, you've just undercut my investment. I'm afraid I have. Fortunately, you didn't have to pay $2,000. Uh, you just <laughs> had to do the work of a review, and I do appreciate that review. Uh, it, your, your comment does point to an interesting development in uh, documentary editing, I think, and perhaps in broader scholarship, and that is uh, the, the generation uh, now in high school and perhaps in college and certainly younger um, are coming to expect more and more content uh, without cost on the Internet, and it's making an interesting um, sort of change in the way that we produce scholarship. Um, it's also important to note that the, the papers of Abraham Lincoln, the Lincoln Legal Papers before it, uh, have received the vast majority of its support over the years from the state of Illinois and from two federal funders, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Historical Publications and Records Commission. And so I feel personally delighted to be able to provide researchers all over the world with these resources that have, in effect, been created uh, through programs and through um, state and federal support uh, using tax dollars. Well, and that, that really is uh, maybe the only model one can think of following, because if, if this information is now available to, to researchers everywhere without direct cost, uh, someone's got to pay it. Uh, there's no free lunch. Uh, someone's got to pay your uh, your mortgage and, and for all the hard work you're doing. So uh, if it's not going to be paid for by people actually purchasing a $2,000 set of, of these documents or more likely a library making that purchase, uh, then then uh, public funding might be the only rational way to go about doing that. The other nice thing about uh, electronic publication online that is not uh, gated and therefore you know charged uh, for you know either by the by use or by some sort of annual subscription is that we're able to link uh, to other resources uh, the other publication that we've put online um, in in print form was called Lincoln day by day a, sort of a chronology of his activities every day uh, for which researchers could find uh, some information and now that's online as the Lincoln log which is available at uh, www Dot org, and because uh, that is available and the law practice is available, we're able to interconnect those two resources as well as an electronic version of the collected works of Abraham Lincoln. So if you are interested in a particular date in Lincoln's life, um, 
and you come across that on the Lincoln log, uh, and he happened to have done something with regard to a legal case, uh, there should be a link there that will then take you to the law practice to that particular case. Or if it's a letter he wrote that was published in the Collected Works, another link can take you to the Collected Works uh, so that you really do create a web of, of resources that, uh, if they were gated or subscription-based, um, would, would be far more difficult to use. Now, Lincoln Day by Day was originally a three-volume printed document, printed book, uh, I, I remember wearing out the covers on that at the Lincoln Museum. But I would guess by this time the Lincoln log must have, have gone well beyond that in adding new material. We have. We've added, in addition to the link to particular sources, we've added um, dozens of new days, not hundreds yet, but dozens of new days, uh, certainly additional information. And what's exciting about, about both the Lincoln log and the law practice being available electronically is that if a new Lincoln document uh, from his law practice uh, surfaces, we can add that document or that case to the online publication. If new information arises about what he was doing on a particular day that either we don't have or that we have very little information about, we can add that. Uh, very recently, a professor of theater history, I believe, um, sent me a, a fully uh, annotated list of all the times he could find that Lincoln went to the theater when he was president, what he saw, uh, and so forth, and, and fortunately included the sources. So as we have time to check out the sources, and we do verify before we add new material to the Lincoln Log, as we have time to check out the sources, we'll be able to add that information to the Lincoln Log. And so it's been a, it's been a wonderful uh, resource to see how people engage it, and uh, we've, we've had... Um, submissions from England and from other places uh, giving us additional information. Sometimes we accept it and, and add it to the Lincoln Log. We don't always. We have to be a bit discriminating. Uh, and we certainly insist on, on you know, contemporary documentation before we do anything like that. So it, it's not a, a wiki sort of format where any, anybody can edit it. Uh, they have to send it to you, and, and you're the gatekeepers in terms of historical integrity. That's correct. We're the sort of we're the historical police in this regard. Uh, we we uh, don't think the wiki model would work for Lincoln, the Lincoln log, uh, in part because there are there are some people who have very strong feelings about Lincoln pro and con that might be tempted to to uh, modify. But also there are people who, because of their passion for a particular location or because of their particular family heritage. Uh, their standards for um, believing that Lincoln was in such and such a place at such and such a time doing such and such a thing um, may not be as high as we would want them to be. I, I think you're absolutely right. It would take seconds before people began putting all kinds of nutty stuff in, in, in there if you allowed everybody to do it. So uh, uh, clearly your, your model is the one that works. Uh, now, you mentioned there are links to, to papers of Lincoln's, and if we go back and look at the history of the, the papers of Abraham Lincoln as a publication, uh, you mentioned the beginning, of course, uh, Basler was the first editor uh, in the 1950s of the, the multi-volumes, the uh, uh, eight volumes with uh, additional uh, uh, addenda published in a couple subsequent volumes. Uh, of the papers of Abraham Lincoln. That, that version, the Basler edition, is available online. Uh, I think the University of Michigan has a site. 
That's correct. Uh, you can board. access it through our uh, Papers of Abraham Lincoln website, which is papersabrahamlincoln.org. Uh, on our reference page, we have a link to the Lincoln Log, to the law practice, to the collected works at the University of Michigan. Unfortunately, their uh, URL is not easily rememberable, so it, it's no, easier I, I to have a, a the, link on my page. The, uh, on my, my Papers of Abraham Lincoln yeah. website uh, or the Abraham Lincoln Association's website. So that gives, and that's an incredibly useful resource, as opposed to having the paper version. There you have the the now somewhat outdated, but but still very helpful papers, collected works of Abraham Lincoln, uh, and you can search for them. Now the the legal papers, as you said, were published in in uh, facsimile form. That you you published pictures of the documents, not transcriptions. So the words are not searchable. That's right, although we did extract uh, approximately 2 million facts from those documents and cases. So if there is a a litigant, um, a plaintiff or a defendant uh, involved, their name would be searchable. Uh, If there's a subject matter that you're interested in, that subject would be searchable. Um, We have summaries of each of the 5,600-plus cases uh, which are searchable. Uh, we have court venues and dates and so forth. So there's a, a number of indices uh, within the Law Practice of Abraham Lincoln uh, interface that allow you to search the cases uh, and even documents for uh, particular people or subjects or, or court jurisdictions or places um, or dates. So there's a lot of information there that is searchable, but you're correct that uh, we did not transcribe all 96,000 documents. And as you mentioned earlier, we uh, would never have been able, I don't believe, to have gotten the funding to do so. No, it's, it's hardly imaginable how, how you could. Now, with the current project, um, at some point the legal papers morphed into the, the rest of the papers of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, how did that come about? Well, in 2000, well, actually in the late 90s, I began to think more about this issue of how the legal papers had been started in 1985 as a, as a way to complete what Basler and his colleagues had done in the 1950s. And I began to think so much had changed, so many new materials had come out. And Basler's, uh, although Basler is a wonderful edition, and I, I never feel that I have to criticize his edition to make the case for the papers of Abraham Lincoln. He did a remarkable job, he and his fellow editors in the 1940s and 50s. It did not include incoming correspondence. It did not um, obviously have the discoveries that we've had of new documents in the past um, 30, or well, the last supplement was 1990, so almost 20 years ago, uh, of Lincoln documents. It did not uh, have the sort of annotation that normally would be in a documentary edition done in the 1980s or 90s or today. So there were some things that we would just do differently, uh, more expansive scope, more materials. And so I began to think about that, and I became director of the Lincoln Legal Papers in 2000. One of the first things I began to do was to talk to people uh, about the possibility of expanding the project into the broader papers of Abraham Lincoln. And in 2001, the trustees of the Illinois Historic Preservation Agency, which was our sort of sponsoring organization, uh, accepted a proposal to expand the project to, in effect, make the legal papers Series 1. Series 2 is what we call the Illinois papers. 
basically all of his personal and political correspondence and papers up to his uh, his inauguration in March of 1861, and then Series 3, his presidential papers. Now, I recall in that era, the early 2000s, there was another project, another uh, Papers of Abraham Lincoln project that was trying to uh, uh, to find all the papers of Lincoln in the Library of Congress and digitize those. Um, and I recall it. I, I've served briefly on the board. The late uh, Bill Gnapp and, and myself and others were part of that. And there was some sponsorship from the Abraham Lincoln Association. And then there was also the the, the project you've just described from the Lincoln Legals. And for a time, it seemed there were two two dueling Lincoln Papers projects. Uh, like two rams in a field uh, contesting for for supremacy. Uh, Yours clearly uh, is the one still standing. Uh, Is is that a fair characterization of what happened? It's a fair characterization. I'm clearly not an unbiased observer of all of these events, but I would say that that one of the things that, that distinguished the two was that we were... Uh, insistent that whatever we did was done to the highest editing standards and that in an uncertain funding world, whatever we did, if we had to stop tomorrow, would be able to be picked up by someone else. And and that work that we had done would not have to be redone. So everything from searching and keeping very careful records to the way that we transcribe, to the way that we proof, um, everything about our project is designed so that people do not have to go over this ground again. Uh, If we've searched uh, a particular entry or series in the National Archives, we keep records. Even if we find nothing, we note that, and we note what boxes we search or what volumes we search. So we want to make sure that we're as thorough as possible. And and the primary difference was that that the other project was trying to uh, complete something that I thought was a a very large project uh, too quickly. Uh, and, and documentary editing is a is a painstaking process. Well, the uh, uh, and that was certainly a while back, and I, I think uh, other there may be very few people who remember any of the details of it. Uh, I'm certainly long detached from it, and happy to see how things have worked out. Uh, but you talked about searching in the Library of Congress or in the uh, National Archives. With the legal papers, you could say, uh, we're looking for legal papers. We're going to look in courthouses, uh, in legal records. Uh, that's a reasonable place to start. With the presidential papers, and perhaps even more with the Illinois-Lincoln uh, papers, there's no such focused repository. How are you finding, what, what's the strategy for finding all of those? Well, uh, we, we started in 2003 with a mail survey. We sent out literally thousands of mail surveys to repositories around the country um, from university archives and special collections to museums to historical societies. And we got a series of responses. And my colleagues and I over the past four or five years have visited uh, somewhere upwards of 470 repositories and private collections in 46 states around the country scanning documents. And one of the things, you, you bring up a couple of interesting points. One of the challenges is, is scope. When we ask a repository, do you have any Lincoln documents, they immediately think, okay, documents written by Abraham Lincoln. And when, even if we explain, yes, we're interested in letters to him, we don't always get that information, which is why it was so important for us to personally go and visit repositories. One of my favorite stories there is that 
a particular repository in the Midwest had reported about 16 or 18 documents uh, in their collections that fit our selection criteria. And so we went, and one of my colleagues and I went and did some additional research, and we ended up with over 60 documents from that repository because they hadn't thought about documents, uh, telegrams to the governor of that particular state, uh, copies of letters from uh, the governor to Lincoln, and, and those kinds of things. And so it was important for us, wherever we could, to actually go to the repository to ask in a variety of different ways. And I should say that um, we still occasionally turn up a legal document that had eluded our search before. So in this search for what are effectively Lincoln's political and personal and presidential papers, we occasionally turn up a new legal paper as well. Well, not, not uh, surprising, perhaps. I guess that'll continue indefinitely. Uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the uh, Papers of Abraham Lincoln with the director of the Papers of Abraham Lincoln Project, Daniel Stoll. We'll do that in just a moment here on Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Do you have a document written by Abraham Lincoln? Before you put it on eBay, hoping to secure your retirement future, I know someone who wants to take a picture of it. We'll find out who when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. My husband and I, we met at a strip mall dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful strip mall built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the highway on-ramp for all the men who had enlisted. He was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the car dealership. But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the ten miles to the high-rise each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me, and we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guest today is Daniel W. Stowell. He is the director and editor of the Papers of Abraham Lincoln, a project to compile all the known documents 
uh, written by or written to Abraham Lincoln. We've been talking about the current effort to uh, uh, find the Series 2, the papers of Lincoln's Illinois years, as well as Series 3, the presidential years. Uh, if you have, uh, listeners, a document uh, that fits this description or know of uh, a local museum or library that has a Lincoln document, uh, I, I would guess you could help this, this matter. Uh, Daniel, what should people do if they know of such a document? Uh, well, the easiest can... thing to do would be to, con uh, would be to go to our website, uh, papersofabrahamlincoln.org. Um, if it's uh, something in their possession or another private owner, um, then they can fill out a form or they can send us an email or call us uh, and we can uh, get additional information about their particular document. And then ultimately, of course, we would love to visit with them and scan that document. If it's a repository in their area and they wonder, well, I wonder if they know about this one, the easiest way to check that is, again, on our website, we have under our search for documents uh, section a list of all the repositories that have cooperated with us uh, and allowed us to scan their documents and so forth. And so that's always a, a quick way to check. But you point out a very important thing. One of the biggest challenges, and I can assure you there are many challenges in a large and complex project like ours, one of the biggest challenges we've had are locating documents held in private hands. Um, there are uh, so many documents out there in private hands. Uh, we sometimes catch glimpses of them when they're for sale uh, in an auction catalog or on the internet now. But really we don't, we're not able to get very good images of them uh, through those sources. Some uh, auction houses have been cooperative with us. Others have not been so cooperative in terms of um, giving us images. Um, obviously they won't let us know who purchased the documents, and I understand that confidentiality issue, but there still seems to be a large misperception among private owners that what they have isn't very interesting to us or isn't significant enough. If it has Abraham Lincoln's handwriting on it at all, we are interested. If it is written to Abraham Lincoln, we're interested. So those commissions, those uh, small endorsements, those signatures on various documents, we're interested in all of those because we're trying to compile as, as comprehensive um, a resource as possible. So your your uh, listeners could certainly help us out uh, a great deal in this way. Well, if uh, hopefully if anyone does have something, they will let you know about it. I remember the last time you and I were face-to-face, -face, I think, was at the uh, Filson uh, Historical Society in, in Louisville last spring, and you were talking about going to Hawaii to find some Lincoln documents. Uh, how did Lincoln documents get to Hawaii, and, and how was your trip? It was a great trip. Uh, actually, it was a, a present for my wife uh, for her birthday to, uh, to do a Hawaiian cruise, and I, I tacked on to it. Uh, a research trip and a couple of speaking engagements. And let me add that there were no tax dollars at all spent on this trip. I, this was out of my pocket. But uh, the Hawaii State Archives actually has six documents um, that fall within our project scope. They have two letters signed by Abraham Lincoln to King Kamehameha IV and then to King Kamehameha V, uh, who were the kings of the Kingdom of Hawaii uh, during the Lincoln administration. There are a couple of copies of letters from those kings to Lincoln, the retained copies uh, that they kept in Hawaii, that they have as well. Then there are two other documents that are a bit more curious. One is a 
an appointment of an ambassador or a consul to the Kingdom of Hawaii, signed by Lincoln. And the reason that it's a little curious that it's there is that those typically were given to the particular person. Um, it appears that perhaps a collector uh, acquired that document sometime in the early 20th century and donated it to the Hawaii State Archives. The final document is the most interesting and uh, one that actually made literally worldwide news for us this summer. It is a um, partially printed one-page document that says um, it orders the Secretary of State to affix the seal of the United States to my proclamation of this date, and it's signed by Abraham Lincoln. It doesn't specify what the proclamation is, but the date is significant. It's September 22nd, 1862, and so I was able to explain to them that that was the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. They had no idea that that's what it was. Now, the question immediately arises, why did that end up in Hawaii? They're not sure. Their records are inconclusive, but they think that perhaps this same uh, collector who had the commission of the consul uh, also purchased this order to affix the seal, and that uh, that's how they acquired it. The story um, made local news and then was picked up by the AP and then literally went around the world. There were uh, a number of foreign countries and states, radio stations and TV stations and newspapers all over the United States carried, uh, carried the story. Now, while you were looking in the Hawaii State Archives, you didn't come across Abraham Lincoln's birth certificate by any chance. I'm afraid didn't didn't find that in Hawaii. Perhaps that's in Alaska. Okay, well, we'll 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 track that down eventually. Um, the the notion of these papers ending up in this this odd place brings up the whole question of of survivability of what what is there and what isn't. Um, uh, with with the bulk of the Lincoln presidential papers in the Library of Congress, for example, it's well known that Lincoln's private secretaries, uh, Hay and Nicolay, had access to those before they ended up in, in the hands of, of, of Robert Lincoln and finally the, the library, and certainly had every opportunity to remove anything that they thought might compromise their, uh, their, their boss's uh, reputation. Is, is is there? How do you deal? I guess I'm asking with, with the the question of the, the the wholeness of the historical record. Uh, it, the, it's the a challenge. Um, it, it was a challenge with the legal papers. Uh, for example, there are a couple of um, courthouses that were on Lincoln's judicial circuit where he would have handled hundreds of cases, and they burned. Um, late in the 19th century, and they, with them went lots of records of Lincoln's law practice. And so these counties that probably uh, had a very robust uh, practice for Abraham Lincoln have a poor documentary record in our edition because of these courthouse fires. Similarly, I suspect there may be types of documents that are also going to be poorly represented. You mentioned Lincoln's correspondence. Um, that he kept that uh, is now at the Library of Congress. And we know from Stoddard and uh, Nicolay and Hay that sometimes they, they, his Lincoln secretaries, would destroy threatening letters, uh, death threats and other kinds of things. And so very few of those survive. One of the things I've been struck with is I have not yet seen very many letters of condolence um, to Lincoln or to, to actually Abraham and Mary Lincoln after the death of Willie Lincoln in 1862. 
I would have expected, and I suspect this did happen, that hundreds, if not thousands of letters came in from the high and the low all over uh, the United States and even in, from foreign countries. And yet we have very few of those letters. I don't know exactly what that means yet, if they were somehow segregated and, and destroyed, whether this was something that, that his secretaries did or that Robert did or that, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it just seems as though there would be lots of, that, of those kinds of, of letters, and, and we have not found them. And, and I guess the tantalizing possibility is that they are all out there somewhere. It's a possibility. Uh, you never know uh, what kinds of caches of, of documents m- may be around. For example, um, in 2006, I believe, there was a, n- a new cache of documents that had been in a bank vault in Pennsylvania for about 40 years that surfaced. And uh, fortunately for us, the auction house was willing to give us images of all of those documents before they sold them. And it included... I believe about 75 or 80 new Lincoln legal documents, many of which were from cases we knew about, but uh, I think a couple dozen uh, revealed brand new cases that we did not know Lincoln was involved in. Uh, so those kinds of things do happen, and uh, and they have a big impact on on the documentary record. Well, you know, the uh, thinking about the the Willie, the missing condolence letters for Willie. Uh, it puts me in mind of, of the insanity file of, of Robert's collection of documents dealing with his mother's uh, insanity trial, which he he did segregate and didn't destroy, but kept separate and hid away. And they weren't found till I guess the 1980s. Right, uh, copies of them were found, and yes, later, much later on. And although these don't seem to be as, I wouldn't think they're as sensitive um, in the sense that these are. And we do have some. I don't want to give the impression that there are none. In fact, one of the more interesting ones is from uh, former President Franklin Pierce, who had lost a son himself and uh, sent a very nice uh, letter of condolence to to the Lincolns. But considering how many people must have done so, uh, there are very, very few. And so it does suggest that perhaps they were somehow segregated, and whether that means they're still somewhere in a file or if they were destroyed or just thrown away. Of course, one of the primary culprits in all of this, as you, uh, Jerry, know, is is Abraham and Mary Lincoln themselves. Yes. There were references when they left, I believe both when they left for Congress, but I know when they left uh, to go to the White House, of them uh, fueling a fire out behind their house with a bunch of papers, letters, and stuff that they no longer wanted to keep. And, and you can certainly picture Mary, you know, being unwilling to go in the room where Willie died, uh, being equally unwilling to have anything to do with uh, uh, the correspondence, it, it just being too sensitive to it, perhaps. Uh, right. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. Exactly. Now, the uh, the other thought there, uh, well, let, let me pause a minute. I, I was... Uh, Still thinking about about uh, Mary and her correspondence, but uh, Abraham Lincoln not only uh, destroyed letters that were sent to him, but he also instructed his correspondence to burn his letters. On, uh, we have we have at least a few letters in Basler that have the appendage "Burn this" written at the bottom. We do, unfortunately, the recipient didn't, and we also have some um, on which uh, William Herndon wrote at the top of a Lincoln letter never to be published and then put his name. Uh, but fortunately, people didn't listen to that. 
Um, so, and I don't want to give the impression to to our listeners that that Lincoln was burning these letters because he thought they were somehow sensitive or that he was censoring the record or anything. He was just getting rid of the garbage, in his view. Uh, when he was getting ready to leave, he was just sort of doing some house cleaning, and he didn't have any need for these records anymore, or these letters anymore that he had received, and so he was burning them. Well, Daniel, the music is telling me we're out of time, too soon as always. Um, but let me repeat, it's www.papersofabrahamlincoln.org, where you want to go, listeners, to find out more about this fascinating project. Daniel, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.